Hello everyone, I'm John Pataki and welcome to Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that dives deeper than the elevator ride to Cyril Karn's mommy's Coruscant apartment into film and TV franchises and the fandoms they inspire. I really wanted, I had to hit that mommy correctly. Of course. (laughs) That's what Cyril said. Today we're talking about episode four of Andor, entitled Aldani. It's the first in a new arc in the show after the first three premiered last week. Today, joined by our Star Wars correspondent, Stephanie Cole. Hi. Sorry we did it without you. Some some weirdo took over last week and we just I know. We just yelled about Andor for twenty five yeah. minutes. Parent teacher night. The perils of being a a teacher and a Star Wars fan is parent teacher night is the night after Andor, but it's only <laughs> once a year. So now it's out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Luth and Rael, you're, you're split and your, your identity is split into two, two worlds. <laughs> <laughs> put on your game face, put on yep. your rings and put on your game face and head put into the, the conference. Teacher wig and go to the parent teacher. Night. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my special teacher wig. Yeah. Whereas, well, I'm glad to have you back because there's clearly a ton to talk about as listeners know. Rogue One is your favorite Star Wars movie. So I just wanted to check in, like, as a Rogue One super fan, how are you feeling about Andor so far? I think I have an idea, but... (laughs) It's so fucking good. (laughs) I mean, it's perfect. (laughs) It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Um, I am feeling like I felt when I watched Rogue One for the first time, but more so because... The way Rogue One felt like it was familiar Star Wars, but new and different at the same time, this is even more that. I It's a whole new world of Star Wars, and I'm just over the moon. It's exactly what I needed it to be and more. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like Rogue One was the like dipping your feet in the water, and they're like, okay, fans, fans can handle this tone. Let's yep. just crank it up to the maximum level. In cranking it up to the maximum level, let's dial down the Star Warsiness yeah. of it. So it's just like pure drama adrenaline the entire time. But somehow um, by doing that, it feels more Star Wars because the thing I loved so much about Rogue One is it felt like I was watching an original trilogy Star Wars movie for the first time because it didn't, it, it wasn't paying homage to everything it thought Star Wars had to be while it was making telling its story it was just telling its story in the world of star wars which is what the original star wars trilogy was doing that's the whole point it didn't hold anyone's hand it didn't explain what we were seeing it was just a extremely sincere story that took itself very seriously in a world that was absolutely insane and i think that there's almost it's funny because this show has made me um look back at Star Wars that uh, stuff that I thought was really great and be like, oh, maybe it wasn't as good as this was. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm so like, glad I- you said that. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that because it really, and not to put those other shows down, yeah. I don't, there's, I think it's possible to to feel this way about it without being like, oh, those sucked because they didn't, they weren't bad. No, when um, I loved those shows, I was genuine in my love, but this is just really showing a new way of doing things that I'm like, oh, wait, no, this is it. This is what I want. This is like, I talked about a little, a little bit with Mark, but it's like, mm-hmm. this is this is Star Wars growing up with my sensibilities. It's the perfect blend of the type of movie that I like, which is that like real dialogue heavy, quick talking spy thriller, espionage drama, and then just overlaid over top of something else I just happen to love just as much, if not more. It's so well done, and it's so rooted in a sense of place and time. And 
the 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 themes and the, the the mood and the tone are all so set that you kind of go back. It's kind of feels like I'm lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. Believe me, this is going somewhere. But I'm not just like I'm lactose intolerant. I have to go like eating like non dairy like the Obi Wan and Bo- Book of Boba Fett were like eating non dairy ice cream, like almond milk ice cream or something. And you're like, this is a this really is good, good almond milk ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Like uh, yeah, like the Ben and Jerry's non dairy. No yeah. sponsored content, but that stuff's good. It's like eating that and be like, okay, okay, this is good, but this is like the full fat. <laughs> this is like the uh, the like you- a Culver's custard. Of, yep. of of Star Wars shows. And I really think that people at Disney and Lucasfilm are going to take notice of the response to that. I really hope so. I do like bump up against people that are like claiming it as an adult Star Wars show because it's got it's definitely more mature themes and things like that. It's just like we don't have to do that, everyone. We don't have to like make it make it an identity, you know? Yeah, a distinction I definitely want to make is this does feel grown up in that it is it's not all action, all creatures, all the sort of fun parts about Star Wars all the time. It's mm-hmm. It feels like one of the Star Wars novels. It's very character heavy. It's not afraid to really slow burn its story and its themes. And it's really, it's grown up not in like that it's got like, you know, it's R-rated and it's so edgy. It's grown up in that it's expecting an engaged patient audience to engage with its story at the level that it's engaging with us. And I think that that is not necessarily, and I, I'm not going to say that I think this is the one that eight-year-olds are going to love. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I think that I, I think that uh, I, Mandalorian is more. You know, they got the Baby Yoda. If they don't know what's going on and other stuff, this one they're just going to be. This is not. This one isn't exactly for the kids. That's okay because I think that Star Wars, what it should be doing and what they should be taking note on is not that I want every show to come out being like only for adults. I just want Star Wars to take note and and say we can be anything because that's my favorite part of Star Wars is that you don't have to feel like Star Wars to be Star Wars and that you can do any story, any genre, any tone within the universe without having to worry about making it a good Star Wars thing. Just make it a good story and put spaceships in it and boom, it's Star Wars. Cause that's yes. the magic of Star Wars. I have to wonder too. Well, like, first of all, you're saying that kids don't like a bunch of people in a white room talking about arrest reports and things like that. Yeah, that's you know, everybody, room. every, every kid loves those dramas <laughs> set at the CIA. They love bureaucracy. You know? <laughs> As a father of two, two young boys, I know that they love bureaucracy more than anything else. The aspect that like Tony Gilroy isn't a Star Wars fan first and foremost, he's beholden to his characters and his mm-hmm. script that still really shines through and continues yes. to. I, I wonder what the process is. I wonder what the ratio is of like as the sh- as the show creator. Like I wonder as a, a sort of a non fan, if you will, in Tony Gilroy. I wonder what the ratio is of like his script setting up the plot and the dialogue, and then people like peppering in the planet names. And the device names and the technology names. I don't think Tony Gilroy is pulling like Mimbin and like uh, oh, no. Sly Moore out of his hat, you know, maybe. But like, I think probably like the story group or like consultants at Lucasfilm probably put things in where it made sense because the skeleton and the bare bones DNA of the story is is very um, born trilogy and born yes. legacy, like he's directed. Yeah. I would imagine that story group or somebody who, you know, knows the whole lore 
gave him a good primer on like the political situation of the time. Sure. And then he just went with it and that they helped, you know, fill in the details. Because the thing I love about Star Wars is that I think the political intrigue and complication, I think the political stuff is awesome. Me too. (laughs) Despite the fact that it was like the thing that everyone ragged on in uh, Phantom Menace, I think the political intrigue stuff is fantastic. And I've always loved stories set during the focusing on the political side of the empire, especially when the Senate is still around, but like it's all for the empire. And then these competing factions within the empire, the ISB has control of Coruscant while this branch of the empire has the Navy and then this and that. And I think it's really, and then you've got all these different guerrilla groups and things that are forming. I think it's fascinating. And I think that it is so, um, easy to just relate to real world historical political situations that it's not that hard for somebody who doesn't really go here in terms of star Wars to just write a really good political thriller set in this world because it's, you know, based off real life political situations. So it's not that hard. Oh, okay. So you just explained to him, the ISB is the imperial version of the CIA and this is their base on Corsa. And he's like, okay, cool. And they have this thing. (laughs) They have, they have a, they have inter political rivalries with other branches of the empire. So this will be a thing that could happen. And then, and then this is the relation of the Senate to this. It's like, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's just in space. You know what I mean? Right, right, so if right. somebody who is who like lives and breathes to write political drama and things like that, like it's actually kind of just a, a great place to play around and write a story. Yeah, it's and perfect. It's not that hard to like just get it. That's one thing I always loved so much about Clone Wars and even parts of season, certain seasons of Rebels, especially the ones that had a lot of Imperial stuff going on in them, was that political stuff. And I just think that Star Wars is sometimes at its best storytelling when it's doing that um probably because it's kind of back to its roots and saying hey our political stuff and like these like real aspects of history are some of the most interesting parts of the story so it's my favorite part of star wars so i'm living for this i yeah i just really can't believe how much it's come around because there's always that part of me that's like like the banking clan and the trade federation stuff that really tugged at me i was like what is that about there's like a, a banking planet that's so cool but everyone else was like oh it's so dumb like it's so it's just, it's the most boring part of the prequels and i was like no it's the most brilliant part of the prequels because oh. it it blows out the whole universe this show does it even more and in such a brilliant way of like kind of step by step you start at the very ground level with the corpos on on ferrix and it's Mm -hmm. like oh the empire like hired out like it's like a blackwater situation like they hired out essentially like corporate mall cop mercenaries to keep the peace (laughs) because they were spread too thin that's amazing never thought that that Mm -hmm. would be a thing we would see and then just to see it step up to the you know the isb who is like it seems like not lower level but like maybe the next step up, not yeah. not quite to the Tarkins. Um, yeah, no, they aren't. But they have the they call the shots on Coruscant, which I was so excited to see. Right, really they're just doing the little field field reports and like just yeah. checking in on different sectors, and it's just their little intelligence agency, and that's so so cool. Like that whole scene with um, man, I I gotta ask you, how are you doing with names so far? Um, terribly, <laughs> but I don't care, <laughs> and right, it's right. fun because like this feels like. 
I'm going to keep comparing this to like my favorite HBO shows like Boardwalk Empire or maybe Game of Thrones when it was still good, um, like the first season. <laughs> um, this, re- th- By the way, this is the episode directed by the woman who directed some Boardwalk episodes. And this episode really reminded me of some of Boardwalk Empire episodes where it's like just a lot of talking and sure. like, p- pieces put, in, put into place. But like it hasn't all come together yet, but you're like intrigued. And you're like, how is this arc going to play out for this character? So yeah, long story short, not great with names right now. Um, I am knowing people as like, you know, I'm like Scotchgard said to Andor and then uh, Aunt Petunia said this. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, and then I was like a friend and person and I've been calling, <laughs> I've been calling Cyril. Um, so he instantly reminded me of a character from Boardwalk Empire of um, Agent Nelson from Boardwalk Empire when I first met him. So I've totally. been calling him Space Nelson <laughs> until I get his name, but I guess I got it that it's Cyril now. So yeah, I've been using... um aliases but it's worked out so Cyril kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Jonathan Groff not so much in like Matrix Resurrections but maybe like a little bit of his Mindhunter character of, uh, of, yeah. Hol- of Holden Ford like a little more downtrodden and defeated but who I'm really loving is Anton Lesser as Major Partagaz. He's Kyburn in Game of Thrones, who is like a maester that becomes Cersei's hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, I, I kept up with it secondhand through people who were still watching it, even after I gave up on it. But I was so happy to see him here because yeah. he, like, they're, like they're, just, they're just eating with these British actors. Like they just- Oh, yeah have this treasure trove of amazing talent that everyone's just crushing even their little bit parts. There's like, there's a character that um, Deidre talks to for like two seconds. And I was like, I want to see more of that guy. He's great. Mm-hmm. Like what the guy that tells him to go see Blevin herself. I was like, this guy's cool. What's his deal. I want to see more, more with him. So maybe we will setting the stage for that. Let's move into a little bit about episode four. titled Aldani, directed by Susanna White, written by Dan Gilroy, starring... Here's that Dickensian cast coming into full play, oh, yeah. um, as Tony Gilroy promised. Diego Luna as Cassian, obviously. Kyle Soler as Cyril Karn. Uh, Stellan Scotchgard as Luthen Rail. Genevieve O'Reilly. I realized last time I said Jean Viev, because I was trying to be like particular and like, accurate, but it's actually Je- hers is actually Genevieve. So Genevieve O'Reilly, I mean, just... We're, probably talk for about three hours about Mon Mothma. Denise Go as Deidre Miro. We might talk for another two more hours about her. Faye Marseille as Val Sartha. Alistair McKenzie as Perrin Firtha. Anton Lesser as, like I said, as Major Partigaz. Alex Lothar as Karis Nemec. Sewell Remy as Lieutenant Gorn. And Cousin Richie from The Bear. Evan Mosbachrock as Arvel Skeen. Really happy to have him back on my TV so soon. I really loved The Bear, and I really loved him in that show. But yeah, this, this cast is like, I'm, I'm really wondering who's going to survive out of this like rebel group that was just introduced from this cast but uh we'll talk more about that in a second this time i'm trying something new and i broke it up into the three relevant story sections of the actual episode itself and we'll kind of talk about them 
one by one. And to start off, yeah, Luthen after you know their grand escape on Ferrix, Luthen and uh, Cassian cruise at light speed towards Aldani to meet up with the scrappy group of rebels. On the way, Luthen offers Cassian two hundred thousand credits to aid in stealing the, the quarterly payroll for an entire Imperial sector. Cassian adopts the name Clem, which is his adopted father's name from the 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 frigate ah. on on Canari. So yeah, he adopts that name for anonymity's sake. Luthen offers him a kyber crystal as a down payment of $50,000 on the promised 200,000 credits. The kyber crystal part I thought was extremely interesting mm-hmm. um, because Luthen says... If like if you plan on selling it, which I think you probably will, by the by the look in your eye, like like it's it's don't take less than fifty thousand for it, but it's invaluable to me. Do you have any thoughts about what this guy like where he got this? What this is? I don't know. Um, I might. I immediately perked up because I wasn't sure if we were going to get any force stuff right. in any sense in this show, and so then we got a kyber crystal. But that's a pretty interesting way to sort of introduce that factor. Um, I didn't know that Luthen would turn out to be a um, undercover antiques dealer. So maybe <laughs> who could have known? Who know? Who knew? I thought he'd be like someone in politics. So he maybe is. I'm wondering if there is a factor where he might be having some sort of connection due to his ability of connect- collecting antiques to the Jedi in some way. Sure. There's a sense that maybe, if anything, maybe he at least feels a connection as a person who is interested in history to them, or maybe more. I'm not sure, but perhaps that is part of his motivation for doing this rebellion thing is is the injustice that was done there, or he wants to do something about that. I love it. Who knows? But it's very much, maybe he's like trying to preserve the history. I'm not sure, but it's an interesting thing that i can't wait to see where it goes it definitely is and i think about the same thing too with um like lyra mm-hmm. uh lyra has the, the the kyber crystal necklace as well so i'm wondering if there's a connection there that like maybe like a group that was had something to do with the jedi or like partners to them at some point the antiquities like the republic antiquities and the the things that they had in his shop are all very interesting. We can talk about mm-hmm. those when we get to that part. But oh, yeah. I just thought it was a very cool jump into some like the the lowest level force force stuff that you could put into mm-hmm. a show like this at this point. It also was very much like I thought about how people get kyber crystals, like the gathering episode of Clone Wars, mm-hmm. where you know, obviously the kyber crystal calls out to you, you have to go through a quest to get it, and it's this initiation into like a new lifestyle. And I was thinking about like how this is that for Cassian. He's being presented this token that he could sell for money, obviously. And it's, it's really just, it's bringing him into a whole new world. It's his Mm -hmm. first steps into a larger world, but it still has to do with a Kyber crystal, but in a completely flipped kind of way. I I love the scene between the two of them. The dialogue there was amazing and really revealing. Like the fact that Cassie and every rebel sector that he knows about so far is like Mm -hmm. all the same to him. And the most important thing to him in this, in this moment is living, which obviously we know, how that ends for him mm-hmm. in Rogue One and how it flips from the only thing that the most important thing to him is to stay alive to, and it flips completely to he would die for the cause. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he would do anything to complete the cause in, up to and including death. It's just a really good reminder that we're still in the very beginning stages of this journey for Cassian. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, the two meet up with Vel Sartha, who I love and Luthen attempts to fold Cassian into an already existing plan at the last minute does not go well. Um, they fight with each other. 
again, another really amazing back and forth conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you really start to get the idea of how tenuous this rebellion is. Yeah. In these yeah, scenes. Yeah, it's so, not established. And and any wrong move could unravel it at, at any point. So she reluctantly agrees to take him on. Then Vel and Cassian take the long way back to avoid detection. Uh, Vel reveals that the target is not just Imperial payroll, but it's housed within an armory. Uh, so Cassian like flips out about that. The pair are nearly detected by roving TIE fighters, but move on undetected and ultimately arrive back at camp where the rest of her extremely paranoid and distrustful crew awaits. TIE fighters... Oh my god! I need to. I have. Let's do it. To say Go on. You would have something, so just just take it and run. All right. I love Tie Fighters. They're <laughs> one of my favorite ships in Star Wars. I have a Tie Fighter tattoo. Um, I this moment just took my breath away. This is why this show is so good, and I'm I'm trying to find a way to put it into words. When these characters are walking across this stunning landscape, clearly filmed on location, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. where, looking like they're in Game of Thrones or something like that, like gorgeous, like Moors, looking like they're in that movie, The Northman. (laughs) You know, did you see that movie? That movie rocked. No, uh, No naked volcano fight. No but, naked volcano fight, but you know, like a, a landscape like that. Sure. And they're walking, they're in like these little shepherd outfits. They don't even look particularly Star Wars. The camera angles, the way the camera is moving doesn't even feel like Star Wars. And then they hide and then TIE fighters just come screaming by. And the way the TIE fighters are shot is not even how star- TIE fighters are normally shot in Star Wars, but you hear that sound and you see them and they're still TIE fighters. It feels like seeing TIE fighters for the first time. Again. Absolutely. It felt like uh, how it must have felt in 1977 to see a star destroyer over your head in the screen for the first time. It, it made by seeing these ships that are so familiar and beloved in such a new context I felt like it was the most Star Wars moment I've ever seen. And it reminded me of similar moments in Rogue One that felt that way. Like the moment when they're escaping um, the destruction of Jeddah and you see the the ship jump to hyperspace in a long shot, which oh, yeah. we had never really seen before. Right, Or even the Star Destroyer just like hovering in place above a city. Exactly, like- exactly. And somehow this is the most perfect encapsulation of why this show is doing it right by putting Star Wars into a story that they are simply telling for the sake of the story and not saying this is how one shoots a TIE fighter. This is how a TIE fighter is treated on film, but just saying, oh, an overhead thing, it's TIE fighters. Ah, masterful. And like shooting like they were from, you see them from underneath. So Mm -hmm. it's that perspective of like, inferiority to them they are imposing they're threatening tie fighters were used to just being like cannon fodder they're just mm-hmm. blowing up left and right all the time and they're kind of like the the the, the spaceship version of stormtroopers they're just mm-hmm. there to be disposable these ones felt like certain doom to two mm-hmm. people on foot like you just start hearing like the faint scream coming through um it reminded me of like i'm sorry for bringing it up but i, I it reminded me of the rise of skywalker when kylo's were like running down ray where you just hear that sound building yeah. in the distance and it's like okay a tie fighter can be threatening and yeah, i really. loved the way that the lack of this show is very um 
it doesn't use music that much. Like the right. music is very held back, restrained. Yeah, it's uh, vibes. Exactly. And so just that let the scream of the TIE fighter, that iconic sound just really shine through. And that's sure. Liter- the sound is basically why I love TIE fighters so much. I just, it's all that Ben Burt magic. And I just love being able to be like, oh my God, it's a TIE fighter screaming across these like <laughs> Icelandic looking highlands of some sort. I don't even know where they filmed this, but it was ah, beautiful. I do love an in-atmosphere ship. I don't know why. I think it's very yeah. cool. And especially over a rustic environment. They set the scene very nicely. The crew's name is Skeen, Terramin, Nemec, and Sinta. Uh, Sinta helps Cassian dress his wounds as the rest of the crew debates his viability in terms of the mission. Uh, everyone's very distrustful, in, insanely paranoid. They know they're in over their heads, but they believe in the cause. And you can tell every bit of dialogue, everyone's just like snapping at each other. Mm-hmm. Like how I, I already don't want to do this. Like you're making it even less of a good deal by adding a new person so last minute everyone's very high strung and again you can just sense sense how fragile this budding alliance is so far mm-hmm. andor's handed a data pad while they're eating around a fire uh and instructed to learn everything there is to know about the mission by the time the morning comes very relatable to cassie and andor in this moment mm-hmm. when he's like can i just finish eating like can i just <laughs> eat first like can i just have some food so concurrently luthan returns to coruscant where he moonlights as an antiquities dealer Mon Mothma arrives with a new driver, and the two put on a show of pleasantries as they tour a showroom chock full of Star Wars lore. The two move back to a room to discuss new ways to funnel money into the budding rebellion, now that all eyes are on Mon Mothma. She suggests bringing someone new into the circle of trust. It's gotta be Bale, right? It's Maybe? gotta be Bale. I can, I, it has to be. It's gotta be Bale. Yeah. Luthen protests, and Mothma heads home to her Absolute dirtbag of a husband who we are not surprised we haven't heard of before. And he's prepping for a dinner party with Sly Moore and Ars Dangor on the guest list. Can you even believe it? And then <laughs> Can you even believe it? when she gets offended and concerned by his choice in friends, he says that they're fun. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... I just don't like as soon as she said Sly Moore, I was like, oh my God, are we gonna get a dinner scene with Sly Moore in it? <laughs> oh dear God, I wish. <laughs> Do you think it's gonna happen? That dinner is gonna happen. I wanna see in what way those people could be fun. He literally invited the creepiest people. <laughs> like b- bug eyed, <laughs> clearly evil eyed Sly Moore. Why uh, right, is that person fun? <laughs> yeah, right hand of Palpatine herself. He's like, yeah, they're fun. They're just, they're fun. Like, they're just good at charades. They just have good jokes. They're caught up on House of the Dragon. They're just really fun <laughs> to have over. I just, I was dying. I think we should probably start with Luthen and his yeah. antiquities dealer. The scene, the Tie Fighter scene, like set the set the series off for you. The part where Luthen's putting on his rings and, like you said earlier, his his crazy wig, which looks really wild, and then it cuts to his face and it's like perfectly attached to his head. Him, pra- him practicing. Being a real person and putting his fake smile on was so chilling because I really felt the anxiety of any false move means death. And worse than death, in his case, is the end of a rebellion. They're at such a point where like any, any, any false move and the whole thing tumbles over. It's a complete house of cards situation. Cut to his antique room. I do think that that lends a lot of credence to what you're saying about mm-hmm. 
having some connection to the to the Jedi Order or something. Because he, I mean, he's got very specific curios in there, some tchotchkes. Um, <laughs> but Jedi I, what appears to be like fallen ruins from the, the temple on Lothal, what appears to be like Starkiller from the Force Unleashed video games, like armor mm-hmm. in the background, all sorts of crazy stuff, possibly like holocrons in the background. And it's not like, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying like Easter eggs, Easter eggs, Easter eggs. And it's like, this is a situation where I don't think these count as Easter eggs because they're not like, ooh, hey, look at this thing. Isn't this crazy? It's place setting. It's exactly. It's rooting you in a place and time in the galaxy. This is, these are relics of an old time, even if that time was very recently. It's Easter Um, eggs in the sense of if you know what you're looking at, you get to enjoy it and see it, but it's not being thrown into your face. Absolutely. Like somebody else could just understand this is just a collection of antiquities. And then somebody who's invested in what those antiquities are will have a lot of joy in finding out what they are. Yeah. It works for everyone. Yeah, it's like it'd be like going to a, a museum of history and seeing like a musket on the wall and being like, "Nice Revolutionary yeah. War Easter egg, buddy!" Exactly. Like it's it's the, the history of the universe. He's antiquities dealer. But I digress. I think that the scene was really electric. You could tell both of them just pouring it on thick. Mon Mothma arriving in like a space Cadillac. Really loved it. Mon Mothma, Genevieve O'Reilly is like just in in her moment, like just in oh, her yeah. glory. Just absolutely crushing it, like this whole part. What a turnaround for for her mm-hmm. character to be like cut from a scene in Revenge of the Sith, mm-hmm. come back. Is the next time she showed up is in Rogue One, right? Yep. Get a little bit part in that pretty much, and then just be like the focal point of a series. It's so 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 cool to see. She also got to voice Mon Mothma in Rebels okay. in that one episode. That I wasn't sure of that one episode where she faces down Saw Gerrera who is voiced by Forrest Whitaker in that scene. And it's one of the best written scenes I've ever heard in stars. It felt like it was something from this. Uh, Oh, so good. But yeah, she is incredible. And I'm just so happy that she's getting a chance to really explore the character. Um, You know, like what a fantastic opportunity. Like we get to really see what she can do with this character in an interesting way. And I'm personally so on board because Mon Mothma has always been a sort of iffy character for me. I'm super fascinated by her, but in terms of how she is in the Rebellion era or how we've known her and then through the Aftermath books and, and so on, she's always kind of given me a little bit of a vibe of that sort of politician who is like supposedly on the side of like progressive concepts and ideals but is also just a little bit too within the system sure just like how saw Gerrera accuses of her uh in that rebels episode his line is something along the lines of when the imperial flag reigns across every star system i hope that you are at least comforted by the knowledge that you played by the rules. So long as our allies in the Senate have hope of a peaceful resolution to this conflict, I will not risk... If you continue to allow this war to be fought on the Empire's terms, not yours, you are going to lose. I will not be lectured on military strategy by a man who has proven himself a criminal. The Empire considers both of us criminals. (laughs) At least I act like one. You target civilians, kill those who surrender, break every rule of engagement. If we degrade ourselves to the Empire's level, what will we become? There she is! That's the leader the Rebellion needs! 
Where is that fire, that passion, when your people need it most? I hope, Citadel, after you've lost, and the Empire reigns over the galaxy, unopposed, you will find some comfort in the knowledge that you fought according to the rules. That's enough. That line just is amazing, and it's just... That, for me, felt like it was Mon Mothma, like, too concerned with trying to, like, keep things above board. But I'm so already seeing that she's much more complicated than that in this and sort of ready to see, like, what's her story? Like, how did she get into this? What's happening? Why is she doing this? Like, all of these things. I'm really excited to see. Yeah, and her husband did not have to be a dirtbag, but that's such a fascinating choice to me. Like, Mm -hmm. what... What does that, how does that inform us of her as a character later on? How does that inform us of her as a character in this moment? Why is he such a dirtbag? I really love when he said, must everything be so boring and sad? And I was like, this guy sucks. This guy fucking sucks. Um, but yeah, just must everything be boring and sad is such a funny dirtbag thing to say. Um, yeah, I um, I mean, we, we better get a Sly more dinner scene because I just can't uh-huh. even picture I can't fathom what that would even look like. Yeah. Um, it's definitely like Chekhov's dinner party where it's like, mm-hmm. this is probably going to happen next episode. If not, not the end of the world. So yeah, elsewhere on Coruscant, a new character enters. Deidre Miro attends a security council meeting inside the Imperial Security Bureau on Coruscant where she's clued into the incident on Ferrix from the first story arc through a colleague's report. Meanwhile, Cyril Karn and his like dopey band of like corpo mercenary enforcers um all his buddies from ferrix are relieved of their duty by lieutenant supervisor blevin and imperial control takes over their sector it's really funny i i love i think it's the next scene or the scene following that where deidre's like assistant is like i'm reading this report like they spelled ferrix wrong (laughs) like (laughs) they spelled the name of their own damn planet wrong that's such a great little flourish well, Deidre looks up the origin of the Starpath unit, realizes she now has jurisdiction because it was stolen from her sector. She brings this information to Blevin, and he refuses to give her the files, citing that she's climbing, you know, you know, what, what does he say? Like, get a firm base before you try to climb the ladder. Make sure you steady. Uh, Something like, make sure you steady the ladder before you try and climb it. Before you it. try to climb it. And then when yeah. she walks out, he goes, don't look down. As she's walking out. It's so, so good. I know. It's so bitchy. I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just so petty. I lo- hashtag stay petty. Meanwhile, also on Coruscant, after like a Charlie Brown, George Michael Bluth <laughs> walk of shame, head hung low, Cyril arrives at his mother's apartment deep in the heart of Coruscant, where he's welcomed with... Uh, naturally, what? What else would a mother grant you with? A slap and a hug. This part, this part is, if you would have told me before and or started that there would be a scene where a guy walks back to his mom's apartment on Coruscant, I like it's such an ordinary little detail. And like mm-hmm. the nooks and crannies of Coruscant, it reminds me of my like grandma's hallways of her apartment complex. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it feels very grounded and very like realistic. But like he goes back, <laughs> he gets fired and goes back to his mom's house. Like, I mean, <laughs> pretty relatable. I don't know. I, I don't know. Pe- it was people wild. Have been there. I am, I am like, where is this going? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it simultaneously makes him more sympathetic and like a hundred times more creepy too. Like, <laughs> Um, going back, he just to goes back to his mom like, right away. And it's like, oh, it makes so much sense. I didn't get to speak about this part with you when you were here, but like in the first three episodes where he, you know, it's revealed that he, Cyril like 
um, tailored his own uniform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is this guy's deal? Like, and then now I, now I know he's a, he's a little, he's a mama's boy. That's okay. Everyone he loves their mom. is okay. just, he's space Nelson. <laughs> I don't know. He's like creepy. He's weirdly obsessed with being a cop. I don't yeah. know what his deal is, but yeah, it's super incel alt-right energy. Yeah, from, it's, uh, it really is. It's <laughs> matter energy from Cyril. He's like going to be going on Reddit after this or yeah, something. Totally. Or Chan even. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, I think darker stuff than that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah his eyes are just so lifeless. And so, I, I don't know. He's such a fascinating character and I really can't wait to see where his story is going. Would you have any, do you have any thoughts or predictions? Like what's going to go on with him next? No, he seems upset that the empire took control of his sector, but he's so pro authoritarian and like, he's such a, a cop that he, uh, that I don't think he will go rebellion, but I don't know what will happen. Maybe he'll start working with ISB lady. Ooh, because she is like, Hmm, that could make sense. We'll yeah. see what happens. Because she's I, um, like, Mr. Tell me more. Yeah, I mean like ACAB even on Coruscant. But like the uh <laughs> when I first watched it, I was like, oh, he's going back to his mother's house. Like he's maybe he's defeated and he'll he'll feel slighted by the Empire and join the cause. And then I watched it again. I was like, okay, that's not what's gonna happen. No <laughs> because way. he's a total creep. And you're absolutely right. He is so like such a bootlicker that mm-hmm. he's like he's sad, but he's kind of like gets off on it in a way where he's just yeah. like, well, at least the empire relieved me. You know, like I don't know. He's just he seems like you said not not super defeated by the news, but more just kind of like ashamed that he didn't make it. Yeah, higher. I think he's. I think he feels bad that he let the empire down. Yeah. I think that he wants to prove it himself by the empire. So we'll see what happens. But whatever it is, it's not going to be good. He's. His whole vibe can lead to nowhere good. He he did have a very like dog that just peed on the floor look to him where mm-hmm. he's just like, I'm sorry, I didn't like and he you know, then he, he yeah. heads back home. I don't know. It's such a fascinating character because it's like, what could this be where I wonder if he'll just go super manic and like super over the top, you know, because he's really by the book. So I wonder if this will mm-hmm. make him like snap and be like, by all means necessary, find Andor. By all means possible, expose a a budding rebellion, you know. I was going to say, I'm fascinated also by this Deidre person. Yes. First of all, can I just say this woman, I've never seen someone act so much without saying anything. Like, the muscles in her face just, like, doing so much work. A lot of mouth acting. A lot of mouth acting. (laughs) Her, uh, you know, jawline muscles, ambassadors going crazy. Like, this uh, is... Very, very, just like, I, I want to know what's going on with her. But like, whatever they're setting up with her, I, I can't wait to see where that's going. And I think that just in general, the fact that this show is throwing all of these new fascinating characters who we can't figure out right away is just such a testament to how this feels like technically this is a spin-off star wars show technically it's a prequel but this feels like it's that much needed fully original star wars story that so many of us have been asking for because absolutely i have no idea what's going to happen I the only it. character i know that i know what's going to happen with is mon mothma and cassian andor and right, that's right. it and exactly literally everyone else I could not tell you, but I can't wait to find out because nothing that they have done 
has suggested anything less than great storytelling. So I can't isn't wait. That, I can't wait to see it. Isn't that so exciting? Exciting. Like I like in Obi Wan. Like some of it felt kind of inert because mm-hmm. the destinies of those two are so intertwined yeah. in the most famous movie of all time. This is just completely shocking all over the place. It's yeah. the tone can change at the drop of a hat. Characters' motivations spin as soon as Luthen started putting that stuff on. And I completely agree with Deidre. Deidre is her sitting at the t- at that round table, in mm-hmm. which, by the way, let's talk about the fact that like Star Wars is like 12% dudes in Empire uniforms sitting around a table talking. All um, with British the- accents. Yes. And this was like the piece de resistance of that oh. whole trope because it was the biggest table. It was the, the brightest room and it was the most uh, in your face Imperial uniforms possible. She was when she's sitting at that round table and listening and like the, the story of what was happening on Ferrix, like catches her ear. Cause she's not really clued in, but then as soon as she hears that her head kind of tilts up and she, then she's mm-hmm. fully locked in, but without saying anything, her eyes are just like darting around the room and it's, you you under kind of understand her whole character, not what's mm-hmm. going to happen to her, but you kind of know who she is just from that introduction. It's really it's really amazing. Blevin is really cool too. I I want to know more from him, but I want I want to know more about what that power struggle is all about. Yeah, Blevin and Deidre take their grievances back to Major Partagas, where Deidre reveals she's detecting a pa- a pattern in different systems that she believes could lead towards there being an organized rebellion. You know, there's some back and forth between Partagaz and Blevin and Deidre, and Deidre here, but she's, you know, Partagaz tells her that she's brought in because the role of the Empire is becoming, you know, we they need more good officers like, like her, basically, because it's about to get a lot more intense. Partagaz is so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's such a, he's such a, such a bad guy that you love to hate. And that line that he says about like, do you know what we are? And she, you know, Deidre reads from the manual and he's Mm -hmm. like, that's great that you just could recite that word from word, but we're actually uh, a healthcare, we're actually a healthcare institution. Dan Gilroy wrote that episode, but that's the most Tony Gilroy shit ever. He loves, he loves, we're not this, we're this Mm -hmm. monologues. Specifically, I'm thinking of the, in the Bourne legacy, there's a part where Edward Norton's like, I think you're in the wrong meeting because in this meeting we're, talking about finding a disease and rooting it out, seeing how much flesh we have to cut off to save the body. If there's any way we can score some data off of this, if they caught him alive, even as a baseline, I mean, even forensically. Maybe you're in the wrong meeting because the meeting that we're having is about an infection. We're here talking about a serious infection and all we're trying to do is determine how far it's spread so that we know how much we have to cut to save the patient. It's, he loves that flip the script. We're not this, we're this moment. And mm-hmm. that whole speech was so, so good. And mm-hmm. I, I hope you see more from Partagaz as well. Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking of like, you know, as we're going through this, I love how when you step back, not a whole lot of significance happened in this episode. Right. That's something I adore. It was just pieces being put into place, seeds being planted, Yep. Some character seeds continuing to be propagated that are building to something. I think that it's fantastic to see Star Wars daring to do that. I love that we don't have to have a big action scene, a big um, recognizable Star Wars moment all the time. Right. 
I just love that. <laughs> I can't I can't say anything more than I just love it. And I just love yes. that. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's what happened in this episode. These people had these conversations. These people had these conversations. These people had these conversations. We'll yeah. see what happens next. Speaking of a dinner party, this was just table setting, right? This is like, yep. oh, the big stuff's about to come, but we, this is necessary. This is necessary details and there's no corner cutting. Mm-hmm. Like you need to know everything happening here but it's in the most efficient way possible still i don't know i i really love all of the little uh flourishes like when um i, I don't know his name but the evan moss Bachrock character i think mm-hmm. he's skeen i believe um yeah. when he wakes up that character reminded me of mouse big time from the matrix um, oh yeah like their, their <laughs> whole, their whole... Bago. Yeah, totally. <laughs> connection <laughs> oh yeah for sure maybe he's part of the Bago family um <laughs> Like their whole crew reminded me of like the Matrix, the the, the Nebuchadnezzar crew, big time. Um, but when he wakes him up, you know, pokes him with a gun, he's like, "Your whole crew's dead." If you ever caught sleeping like this, like Saw Gerrera would have your head on a pike. Just little, little things like that that everyone's aware of. All the different cells, uprising groups, like you know, Cassian. Cassian references: Are you partisan? Are you Sep? Is Sep short for separatist army? Must be. Yeah, are you SEP? Are you Republic? Are you this? And it's like, are you Alliance? So there's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we know this from Rebels, but there's like a bunch of these different pockets and everyone is kind of aware of the different styles mm-hmm. and intensity of them. Mm-hmm. Um, just great little character, just great little world building details in a world that we already thought was like built for us that we knew everything about, you know? Mm-hmm. I find myself usually being patient for the next episode. There's very few mm-hmm. shows that like, I'm like chomping at the bit for the next episode. Even even with the previous Star Wars shows, I was like, I, I can't wait for the next one to come out, but I'm not like, oh, what's gonna happen? Like I, I just having absolutely no idea where this is heading. Oh, yeah. well, obviously let's let's just get this out of the way now. We we know where it's heading. We understand it's heading towards Rogue One, but like we don't understand the specific journeys. Um yeah. And it, it just, it's such, a, I just love being in this version of the world so much that I can't wait to come back to it week after week. It's one of the rare instances where I'm like kind of uh, disappointed they didn't put it all out once, but I would already be, <laughs> I would have already devoured it. So I'm happy with the idea of just like yeah. sitting with it week to week and letting it s- settle in. I am, um, have never, I won't say never, there have been times, but I feel like I'm in such good hands with this. Yes. Um, it feels similarly to how I felt during Bad Batch or the maybe some the some of the latter seasons of Rebels, where I just was continuously impressed so much that I didn't have to be concerned that I I just feel like I know they're going to cover it. You know what I mean? Like right, exactly. I didn't have to worry that this this interesting thematic thing that made me go, huh? I don't have to worry that that's not going to get explored to its full potential because i know it will and i right, just right, right. say that based off of just four episodes and absolutely absolutely um like for example i when we watched the first arc um and then afterward we're talking about it my sister's like so yeah um on petunia because that's what we've been calling his mom <laughs> his adoptive <laughs> mom she's like she just like kidnapped a kid right and i'm like yeah she's like are 
do you think they're going to address that, like, maybe she had her justifications, but, like, that is, like, a full-on, like, white savior kidnapping there? Sure. And I was like, yeah, I think that actually we probably will, because this show has proven to be smart enough to, like, if it's going to suggest that, it's probably yeah. going to explore that. <laughs> I, think, I think we already are without being without having the, the spotlight put on it because yeah. you, what you're seeing is like a listless and, and like ship without a country type person in Cassian mm-hmm. where he's, you know, the, that obviously the, the found family trope of star Wars, but like he's, he's already restless and kind of troubled. And like Mark and I were saying last week that he he's messy. He's just so yeah. messy. And I think without explicitly addressing it, that's like, it's like the effect of him, like feeling so displaced from his, his world and like just never having a proper place, even with these adopted parents, he still has something te- like tugging at him mm-hmm. to be part of something bigger because of how he, how he was raised or, yeah. or how he grew up on Canary. And like, what's more star Wars than that is like feeling a, a, a call to something bigger because you lost your initial family. And I think it's just, I, I think we see that already kind of turning without, if not being explicitly said by him out loud. Yeah. So. And I think it's fascinating that he's introduced looking for his sister. Yes, love it. You know, and then and then making a really bad decision. I think that that is very just sort of indicative of how well this show is building so much character stuff in small moments. Um, and I love that it is daring to make Cassian messy and unlikable, like very unlikable, to be quite yeah, honest. If I didn't... Punk. If I didn't already love this character from Rogue One, I'd probably be like, this guy. <laughs> but like, that's so great. I love that. He's not even, he doesn't even have that Tom Solo charm. He's just kind of a, just kind of He's a rough. mess. He's yeah. rough. He's in a bad spot for sure. Diego Luna is just crushing it. I think we well, kind of take it for so granted. Good. We take it for granted, I think a little bit because he's the returning familiar face. But this is not a familiar face. This is not the same character. He said that in interviews where he's like, how boring would that be if I came back and just played the same character? This is someone, this is a different person. Mm-hmm. And it's so evident and so obvious just how bubbling at the surface he is about everything. Like how very mm-hmm. like, I'm here to do this back away from me. Yeah, he's incredibly unlikable. And that makes him even more lovable. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I just, Diego Luna is such a good actor and I'm He's just so, so glad good. he gets to do this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just so great. He gets to del- deliver very dramatic dialogue and then just say ridiculous Star Wars shit in a very, in the most serious tone possible. Which so. is how you do it. It's like what, what George Lucas said, like, just say it like, like, you know what it means. <laughs> it works. <laughs> like, like we said, kind of a table setting episode, uh, but by no means forgettable, just really mm-hmm. tense um, the promise of something really big to come. Something it's- else that made me laugh is I can see how something like this is not for every Star Wars fan. And I can see some Star Wars people being like, this is too slow. This doesn't feel like Star Wars. Fine. You know, you've got your other stuff. But I laughed so hard because I felt like <laughs> when Mon Mothma's dirtbag husband said, must everything be so sad and boring? I felt like that was someone on Reddit talking about this show. Oh, <laughs> I, felt absolutely. Like they, I felt like they were absolutely. I'm, I'm excited for this heist. I think it's really cool to see that the first arc is like a hard-boiled noir style movie. This arc is clearly going to be the heist movie. I wonder if every arc is going to have a, a genre. I love a heist. I, you oh, can't yeah. go wrong with a heist, especially a heist, a heist gone wrong. Good. 
Yeah, a heist built around a uh, something in the sky. That's going to be wild. Yeah, celestial event, they said. Celestial and that's like event, yeah. Nothing more Star Wars 2 than a daring escape in a shitty spaceship. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, excited to keep talking about this with you and excited to see. We have so much of it, too. There's 12 episodes. <laughs> And it's going to be 12 episodes of this. I can't yeah, wait. Three months of Andor. Buckle up, everybody. Here we go. Oh, so yeah. thanks for hopping back on and talking with us about it. So you know it. if you like what you're hearing, make sure to follow us at B1N1Pod on Instagram. Make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Ring the bell. Rate us five stars on Spotify. And uh, thanks to Christian Cramo for our theme music. And we will see you next week with more Andor. We'll see you then. Bye.